Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Lisa Sove, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's great to have you here. This is going to be a very interesting conversation, I think. You uh, you have done so much in your career so far, um, and, uh, and I want to talk about all the things that you're doing specifically your work in the community and how you're sort of combining your firm and the things that you do with your firm and your passions and how you sort of engage the community with doing that work, but also being able to provide uh, resources and, and information and uh, all kinds of things back to the community through what you're doing. And so uh, super interesting, and I'm looking forward to that conversation. But let me introduce you first so everybody knows a little bit of background. Uh, I mentioned to you before we started recording that I usually – uh, do a little sh short bio and then go into an origin story. But there's so much good stuff here. I want everybody to know even just a little bit of what you're doing, and then we'll go deeper into your origin story. So let me let me um, share some of that. Uh, Lisa Silva is a licensed architect in the state of Michigan, co-founding principal and CEO of Synecdoche. 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 I got it right third time. Yes. <laughs> and it's an award-winning interdisciplinary architecture and creative practice with studios in Ann Arbor and Detroit. The studio has set precedent as a woman-owned firm that integrates fabrication and real estate development into the operations and investments of the studio. 
They're launching a product line this year from their bespoke designs from their in-house fabrication shop. Sounds like a lot of work, right? A lot, a lot of things going on. You better buckle in here. There's more. Lisa also recently founded Do Good Work, a 501c3 nonprofit whose mission is to strengthen the community of creators and artists with positive changes in resources and placemaking toward a strong and inclusive social, economic, and cultural fabric of their communities. Their goal is to translate many of the pro bono efforts done at Synecdoche uh, into pro, uh, new programs that others may be able to also support. Lisa is also the co-founder of Studio Studio, a modern venue and co-working space for creatives and photographers and a partner at, is it Ivey? Ivy. 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 Yep. It's spelled I-V-E-Y. That's why I asked. So yep. a partner at Ivy, a non-binary gender neutral studio, uh, salon in Ann Arbor. On top of all of that, Lisa teaches graduate courses and is a leading donor for the Architecture Student Grant Research, uh, Research Grant at Taubman College of Architecture and Urban Planning at the University of Michigan. In 2001, Lisa was recognized by Forbes on the Next 1000 list, recognized by AIA Michigan for the Young Architect Award and the University of Michigan Taubman College as the inaugural uh, Outstanding Recent Graduate. And on top 2021. of all- 2021. What did I say? 2001. Two two thousand oh two thousand did I say two thousand one? Man, I wish yeah. I was a used. It wasn't twenty years thing. ago. It was last year, twenty twenty one. Wow. Okay. Um, no, definitely not twenty 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 oh one. All right. So uh, she also serves as a planning commissioner for the city of Ann Arbor, including on serving on the ordinance revision committee, and it just goes on and on and on and on and on and on. So I, I that sort of gives you sort of an overview of of Lisa and what she's doing. Um, so let's, let's start Lisa, where this all started, who inspired you to become an architect or what inspired you to become an architect? When did you discover your passion for this profession and share that story to where we are today? Yeah. Um, my origin story is really an inspirational poster. I don't even know if it would be called inspirational, but um, my dad worked for Apple back in the 90s, early kind of sales um, and network nerd. And he had this poster, Matt Groening, before The Simpsons, created a poster for Apple computers um, called Bongo's Dream Dorm. Uh, and they handed it out to all the employees. And so it really is a section perspective of the most kind of radical cartoon dorm and Right, like I didn't know what a section perspective was when I was 10 years old, but I got kind of really consumed in that space. And so the idea of, you know, all of these spaces converging and how slip and slides and section cuts and things kind of went together just rolled me into drafting class in middle school. Uh, I took every single vocational architecture class in high school and went right in. So I knew from middle school, I think that I wanted to be an architect and really kind of charted my path. Where where did you discover architecture and and the profession of architecture so you saw that that poster yep. it it fascinated you that this is an interesting drawing drawing and how it's drawn and the perspective of it all sort of of of, of you engaged with it how, where did you make that connection that there's architects and an architecture profession yeah so in my junior high school we had uh kind of four segmented vocational you know it was like one was 
home ec, <laughs> you know, we learned to sew and, and make cookies. And one was drafting and there was keyboarding and things like that. One of them was drafting and, you know, we spent nine weeks hand drafting. And so that was kind of my first entry point yeah. of learning how to hand draft. And we got, you know, the final kind of project was like, go design your dream house. Um, and then my high school actually had vocational classes. So district wide people from other high schools would come in and learn CAD and drafting uh, at our school. And so I had just so many resources early on that I was introduced at a really young age. But I think in all of that, I was introduced to drafting, not architecture. Right. And it wasn't until I actually like went to college. So I went to Lawrence Tech for undergrad and then Michigan uh, for grad school. And I think that's where I realized drafting is not architecture. Um, and the more I was like introduced to the side I didn't understand, the more I actually got back to Bongo's dream dorm, right? Like I got back to kind of the fantasy and the inventiveness instead of the kind of mechanical pieces. So it really came full circle in kind of developing that curiosity. So, so you, so you go through school and, and, uh, what happened after you go after you go to architecture school did you did you go get a job or how did what was the next step out of that nope recession hit <laughs> so, so um i was actually a single mom in undergrad and that's where i met my current partner adam and so at the end of undergrad 2009 there just weren't jobs right yes like, i remember that time <laughs> <well>. <laughs> yeah. so as a single mom i was definitely not going to take a you know free internship like i can't pay, take unpaid work um and so we adam and i we found our first project on craigslist actually a very small project in detroit and started from there we got our a, a check cut to buy materials because we were fabricating the thing of this made-up firm that we picked as synecdoche um, which came from the Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, film that came out that year, Synecdoche, New York. So that's where the name comes from. Uh, and so we would go to the bank and they're like, you don't exist. What are we supposed to do with this? Trying to like cash in on our personal name. And so within a 24 hour period, I figured out how to form an LLC, create a business bank account, cash that check and buy materials. So that was like the very rapid fire and wow. unexpected start to Synecdoche. And that was the summer between undergrad and grad school. Right. And so then we went to grad school hoping, you know, a two year delay in the market will kind of recover. But it really became we're going to do one project a year. Um, and so the following year, we did a backyard artist studio for a friend. And then we won um, Young Architects Forum of Atlanta, their 10 up uh, competition. And so right, we found out like during our midterm thesis reviews that we had won this competition. And so immediately after graduation, we're procuring materials, um, setting up and creating this pavilion to go down there. And so we kept that cadence going on for quite a few years until we ended up having three projects in a year. And that's when we decided, I guess we got to quit all of these other gigs and do the thing. And that was in 2015. So 2015, you formalized it made it a firm and went all in yep still unlicensed at the time too so, um, so what kind right? of work were, <laughs> yeah. what kind of work were you doing as unlicensed architects starting the firm we were working with architects of record uh, for several of our projects um, a lot of interior renovation work um, not a lot of residential right so in michigan you can do a lot of uh, residential to a scale without being licensed it wasn't uh, a type of 
project that we were that interested in. We really like the commercial work and working with small businesses. And so we really dove into figuring out how to partner and collaborate with other firms to be able to kind of execute on some of the designs that we did. So, so you launched 2015, go in, start doing commercial work. Um, how was that? Was it, was it easy? No. <laughs> no, it wasn't easy at all. Um, but the really nice, like we were learning, you know, along with our clients, one of our early mottos is we're a startup for startups. So we were very honest about we're starting up as well. We're all in this game of exploring and growing together. Um, and I mean, we were very upfront too, like we're not licensed and these are all the kind of other things that have to go along with that and who we have to work with. So don't call us your architect, <laughs> like, you know, we're yep. your design team and things. Um, but I think like setting that tone that we're a startup for startups, that we are like along the ride, um, really kind of helped in that relationship that we could really work with our clients in a way that we we're really learning together. What type of clients did you attract sort of positioning yourself that way? Um, a lot of like food truck to brick and mortar restaurant, um, what was a lot of the early work. And then there was a lot of tech startups. So getting seed funding and we were kind of that transition of like, all right, you got your Ikea desks and you're moving ready. And now you want to kind of impress new board members or go for another, you know, round of funding. You've got to kind of style up and compete for talent. That's where we kind of jumped in. And so again, it was just that narrative of like kind of growing up. And so then we went from startup from startups to growing up with growing up sort of thing. And so right. we were all, we were evolving with the kind of clients we were attracting pretty simultaneously. Also, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but but Detroit is in in the midst of a, of a renaissance and is and is you know reborn and becoming new things. And tech has a big part of that. A lot of investment going into D Detroit. Um, was that also helpful that sort of that environment of startups and sort of, you know, doing things differently sort of help you launch that way? Yeah. I mean, actually a lot of the tech startup stuff happens in Ann Arbor with the University of Michigan. This is where Google happened. This is where Adobe happened. Um, that's where a really heavy piece of um, capital has really come in. VC funding per capita, um, really happens in Washtenaw County, Southeast Michigan at a rate comparable to Austin, Texas or San Francisco. So it's this really interesting like Midwest anomaly of like small college town, but having Detroit is this really complimentary metropolis um, and what you kind of do with that population exchange of a hundred thousand people in Ann Arbor and a million people, you know, in Detroit Metro. So I think that what that pairing of like heavy resources in a small town and, you know, like a, a urban kind of growth perspective um, and kind of new ideas and like the new manifest destiny of Detroit, like that becomes like a really great way to kind of converge in the industry and push some stuff forward. So did you build your brand around that? And, and you mentioned that sort of, you know, that you started up as a startup for startups and then as you grew, your clients grew and your brand evolved. Um, did were you sort of conscious of that and sort of position yourself and market yourself that way, or is it sort of more of an evolution? Definitely an evolution, and I think like these are all just things that we were naturally, you know, saying and reacting to. I think the first time we took a like brand stance per se uh, was when we we painted "Do Good Work" on the back of our fabrication wall at twelve feet tall. <laughs> 
Um, and it was, it was still came out really naturally as something that we said in the office, like do good work and people will notice it's kind of the longhand about being an example in your community. Um, and that doing something is going to build kind of that momentum and that ripple effect sort of thing. And so it was just like a declaration of, you know, like good work is, you know, at the base of what we do and like being good. And so I think that was a big transition to like declaring our brand, um, which I think has really trickled into the types of projects and um, ways we get invited to work with the community now. So, so you mentioned community do good work came out of, of your practice. Um, it is now a 501c3. So you, it's actually a separate entity where you can do that type of work. Where was that decision made? Was that also an evolution of the practice that you were doing and the types of work you were doing and saw an opportunity or was that sort of a strategic plan? Yeah, always just a, an evolution, right? Like it became something that we were naturally doing pro bono work or self-initiated work or just, you know, like contributing to other things happening in the community um, to the point that we're doing, you know, multiple self-initiated projects that we need a fiduciary for. Um, or like we can't take donations as a for-profit. And so like creating the nonprofit was a way to, while other people wanted to be involved, it's not as easy to kind of like jump into a for-profit. And as an architecture firm, like we take a very strong stance that we don't do unpaid work. And so like we can't take, you know, even like volunteer work per se, just doesn't feel like a good fit. Um, where do good work now is like something created from Synecdoche to be able to capture a lot of that and help other people feed into kind of that resource and like fine tune exactly the types of things that we're trying to tackle instead of just a lot of stuff kind of showing up um, and opportunities to take on. Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. This episode is brought to you by BQE, the makers of BQE Core systems and standard operating procedures. You already know that that's how to build a profitable business and find the freedom you want. You need systems and procedures, but you struggle with choosing which systems you need most and how to implement those systems quickly so you can get back to doing what you love most. The Designing Your Business Masterclass series was created by acclaimed architect and business consultant, Douglas Teeger to help fellow architects and engineers run their firms more profitably while maintaining a healthy work-life balance. Douglas grew from a solo practitioner to become managing partner of his 30 plus person firm and then later sold his firm so he can do what he does today, helping architects be more successful at Tiger Consulting. On the third Wednesday of every month, Douglas dives deep into an essential topic that will strengthen the profitability of your firm and make it sustainable for growth in the years to come. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass with Douglas Teeger at bqe.com masterclass and start implementing powerful systems for the profitability you need and the freedom you want. Every live masterclass session includes AIA continuing education credit and when you visit bqe.com masterclass, you'll have access to the full library of past sessions on demand. The Designing Your Business Masterclass is free and it's brought to you by our friends at BQE, the makers of BQE Core, the software that makes it easy to manage your projects and people for maximum productivity and ultimate profitability. 
Register now for the Designing Your Business Masterclass at bqe.com slash masterclass. That's bqe.com slash masterclass. This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. There's a lot to love about being an entrepreneur architect, right? But trying to figure out your financials on your own is not one of those things. Luckily, there's FreshBooks, the all-in-one accounting solution that's built for business owners like us. FreshBooks takes all the not-so-fun parts of running a business from building and tracking invoices to managing online payments to organizing expenses and automates them with features like the new digital bills and receipt scanner saving you up to 11 hours per week in the process. 11 hours. FreshBooks has your back at tax time too. It's almost tax time. With a ton of reports to choose from, you'll know exactly where your business stands and you can easily hand the keys over to your accountant so they can take over when it's time to reconcile everything for the year. Try FreshBooks. Try FreshBooks for free for 30 days. No credit card required. It's free. Go to freshbooks.com slash architect. Freshbooks.com slash architect. Get started today. That's freshbooks.com slash architect. So what will you do with your 11 more hours each week? This episode is brought to you by rcat.com. We all have that one story, that one project that had such a unique situation that it required a solution that you had rarely considered before. We share these stories in private professional circles with our friends and our colleagues, but there has never been a collection of these stories of conflict and triumph all in one place until now. Detailed is a podcast series that features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who share their insights and expertise as they highlight some of the most complex, interesting, and oddball building conditions that they have ever encountered, and the ingenuity it took to solve them. Join host Sharice Lakeside, aka CSI Kraken, a senior specifications writer at RDH Building Science as she uncovers lessons learned to help you navigate similar challenges that may arise in your next project. Detailed, an original podcast by Arcat. Listen and subscribe right now at arcat.com slash podcast. That's arcat.com slash podcast. A-R-C-A-T dot com slash podcast. Detailed, every building has a story. Please visit our sponsors today and thank them. Thank them for supporting you the Entree Architect community. What type of projects does Do Good Work do in order to, so you said you did some self-initiated projects and then you needed this this entity in order to be able to, to you know, expand yeah. on it. What type of those projects are you doing? Yeah, so we've done um, like a couple pop-up installations for like community uh, festi- art festivals around town. Um, in 2020, uh, I helped organize and spearhead a local murals festival. So we did 10 murals in town. So it was the fundraising, the coordinating with building owners and artists. Um, we just got a donated food truck from a client who's moving into their second restaurant. And so they didn't need the food truck anymore. And we said, hey, can we have it? We'd love to take what we have in our fabrication shop and make a mobile version of it. Um, that 
takes a lot more resources than a one day, you know, pop-up installation. And so those are the types of projects that rolling into do good work as a nonprofit really helps catalyze, you know, a lot more momentum and like stickiness uh, for the long term instead of these kind of like short iterative kind of fun things on the side. Yeah. It sounds like much of what you do is community driven, that, that you do it specifically to give back and improve the community around you. Um, what inspired that? I mean, that, that's more than an evolution of that just happened. Is it something about who you are or where you've come from that sort of inspired you to do that? What, what inspired that type of work? It's hard, like, it just feels natural, right? I, if I reflected enough, you know, I'd probably recognize that, you know, as a single mom for, for a long time, like building a village of support mm -hmm. makes a big impact of, uh, you know, between mentorship and resources and things. And so figuring out how to pay it forward. Um, but even building a firm, even when we were not licensed and having a firm support instead of seeing us as competition, but collaboration, so that we could get through projects, accumulate the hours, and then become licensed ourselves. In the end, I think a lot of these kind of experience moments built up to recognizing if we make a stronger community, it creates a better place for us to do business too, right? Yeah, like, 100%. Right. So like, why wouldn't you like invest in your community? It's not all a give. At the end of the day, we all kind of win from it and we can build better projects and things. I think that's also like why I'm on planning commission yeah. like we should create better zoning ordinances that support more equitable development more sustainable development more affordable development um and a lot of ordinances and things need to change to really help incentivize those sorts of things going forward yeah. so as a volunteer role i'll see you every tuesday night for several hours <laughs> <laughs> debating all of these things yeah I, amazing all all of the work that you do the the um yeah i just want to you touched on the fact that uh, along the way you did hours in order to get licensed. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I'm sure there's lots of listeners that heard that and they're like, how did she do that? Right? Yep. She launched her firm right out of school, actually in between going to school, right? Launched it, it was born yep. between graduate and, and undergraduate um, and then went to graduate school and then did it again right out of, uh, out of graduate school and then eventually formalized it, but still working non-licensed and then you became licensed. So how did that process work for you? Yeah, so my first chunk of hours came from my thesis advisor actually. Uh, we were hired as research assistants uh, after grad school. Uh, she's a licensed architect. And so even though we were doing more research-based work, it qualified under kind of different segments. But yeah. yeah, a good chunk of the hours too came from our architect of record signing off on our hours, right? Like they're reviewing our documents as if we're working in the, the studio, right. right? Giving us the same feedback. Uh, we're just kind of segregated by an LLC, but that similar oversight and mentorship was still happening. Um, and we got our hours signed off that way. So, and that's what, you know, I started right from middle school and be like, all right, you go to undergrad and you go to grad school. Like you have to do these things to be an architect. And then like life happened and right. I took a completely different road, but it's important to kind of figure out alternative paths yep. um, really work um, and should be supported and transparent. Um, and I think right now there's just a, a linear path that seems to be the only visible way. So, 
Yeah. And, and, and carb, I mean, I've spoken to and carb and carb is out there trying to change that they're trying to work on alternative ways of getting licensed. And I think they're, they're working hard at that. They're, they're hearing us say mm -hmm. things like that. And they're working at actually right now, I'm not sure if this episode will be sponsored by it, but NCARB uh, sponsored um, this podcast and many others while they were doing their survey specifically for that to get feedback mm -hmm. on how they can uh, work on their their alternative ways of getting licensed. Um, go ahead. I was like NCARB's been it's been pretty seamless on their end. It's actually been, you know, some architects in our community really kind of pushing back on the path and like our natural tendency to compete and gatekeep. That's probably holding our profession back more yeah. than NCARB figuring out how to actually open the gates. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so many players, you know, in, in this field to help hopefully, you know, smooth over to make things easier. Yeah. Yeah. And now, now you're talking my language because that's one of my <laughs> missions is to is to make the profession more transparent so we can yeah. we can all thrive together. And Entree Architect is all about that sharing, which is that it's how this podcast started in 2012 was me sharing what I knew in order to inspire other archi architects to share what they know um, and make a shift, really yeah. change the way the profession works. Uh, mm -hmm. And I see it. I see it definitely changing, I think. Um, through the work that I'm doing and lots of others are doing, but also through um, your generation and the generation that's coming behind you comes to that naturally. They're expecting that transparency and sharing of knowledge. Um, totally. And so, and so I, the profession is shifting and, and everyone else will have to shift with it. It's exciting to yep. see it happening. I mean, that's why we also, the ASRG grant, the Architecture Student Research Grant that we fund, uh, started funding uh, we're starting to get other alumni to kind of show up, but like our first project, the budget was $1,500 in the end, it won Inc.com and Architizer, you know, like world's coolest office award. And it was the one that had forced us to form an LLC and get a business bank account. And so we fund several $1,500 projects at the university of Michigan, but they're not coursework. They're independent grants that students have to write and then independent projects that they can create. And the whole idea is like, the smallest bit of funding really can be a catalyst to start something new. And we've seen students be like, maybe, you know, we worked as a team together. Maybe we could form a studio right out of school doing this thing. And the more we can find different ways to kind of support that and say, yeah, try it, please. Like, yes. I actually want more competition, like in the arena, because it's going to push us all to be better. Like, nobody can do what any individual can do, right? So sharing all the secrets it's like giving a chef and then giving a 10 year old the same ingredients right. and say, make me dinner. You're not going to get the same meal out of it. Yeah. And so why are we guarding some of these things? Yeah. Like when really we should just be fostering it up. And and there are no secrets. Business is yeah. business, right? And, and some of us can do business in different ways and in innovative ways to be more successful at it. But the fundamentals are the same. And so much of what is hoarded in the past centuries is just business fundamentals and, yep. and, and which are typically, you know, in our profession learned in secret, right? Because then no one shared it. And we weren't taught that in architecture school. There was no business school for architects. And so we all had to do that on our own and struggle for decades before we figured out the way that it might work for us, rather than sharing that knowledge to everybody you know and letting architects who are entering the profession become very successful very quickly and the entire profession become stronger and, and more, and which benefits the world for sure. Yep. 
that's like that first project. I'll go back to that first project again. It was one of our, our faculty that we told that we got this commission and he was like, do you have a contract? And we're like, no, we're senior year of undergrad. <laughs> <laughs> what pro practice class did we take yet? He's like, let me send you a draft contract, you know, like fill this thing out. If you like, like don't, I'll tell you what's boilerplate stuff and I'll, you know, give me a draft back for me to fill out, but have a contract. And like, we wouldn't even know. Right to have one or where to find one, you know, without kind of those resources and somebody just basically like pushing that resource on us. And I mean, I probably get, you know, an email a month, who's your CPA, who's your lawyer, you know, sort of thing for architects starting up in the community. I'm like, here, if they're my favorite, here's their contact info sort of thing. And the more of that sort of knowledge exchange, you know, it's like, you don't, in the end, you don't want to have some other firm fail because it leaves a bad taste in the mouth of a client. And then the client loses faith in our industry. Right. And you want clients to have the best experience with our industry so that our value is declared, right? And that we can really reinforce what value we offer instead of being like, I hope you fail so I can get something. Well, shoot, we're all gonna fail because that's, that's been our brand. Yeah, and that's the story of our profession for centuries. Yep. Uh, But I'm an optimist. And yep. it's shifting. I can see it shifting. I've experienced it for the 20 years uh, plus We're that I've been in, in the profession. It is shifting in those 20 years. It's dramatically different. Um, when I first started this podcast, I would talk about money in any way. And I would get a very well-meaning, kind architect emailing me or messaging me privately to not talk about money because that's against <laughs> the rules. And I'd have to explain to them that that's not against the rules. And that's it's something we need to shift and, and change. Uh, and I don't get those messages anymore. It's it's yeah. out there. We're all talking about it. It's part of be doing good business is understanding how money flows in and out of our firms. And so totally. Um, I mean, we're we're hiring and you know posted salaries, and I had people you know like DM me and say thank you for posting this. I was like, who like this should not be a thank you. There should not be a thank you extended to this. We should be this transparent. We should like hold each other accountable. Like this is both what we can afford and wow, that's what you're paying somebody sort of thing. Like those just seem like norms. And I think that's where even like learning beyond our industry. And again, kind of going back to like doing good work and being in the community, you hear from different perspectives and industries about how they're working on equity and justice, how they're responding to community needs. You say, how can I fold that back in with my expertise and within, you know, my studio? And so I think that's, you know, a lot of what we do is we're trying to like replicate and apply a lot of those conditions into our studio. And so we're also not looking too much about like, what are other architects doing? (laughs) We're like, what are other businesses doing that are doing good? And then how do we fold that into our industry? Instead of repeat, because other industries are more transparent, right? Or yep. are more helpful or don't see you as competition because they're like, I'm a tech office. You're, our, you're a service industry. Nobody's going to invest in you. Here's all the goods. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love hearing you say that. And and I hear other architects saying that. Yeah. Um, and and it's, it's very quickly shifting. Um, when I introduced you, I went through a whole list of things and, and there were many, many more that I didn't mention. Um, it sounds to me through now talking with you that much of your evolution has been you saying yes, seeing an opportunity and and not knowing how yes is going to work, but just saying yes and going for it. Um, 
talking to yes. other other architects who are listening, other young architects who are listening, who are about to start their own firm, do you have any um, uh, recommendations or, or thoughts about that for them as they start? Because it's a scary thing to start an architecture firm. And a lot of architects don't start it just out of the fear of not knowing. Um, what would you say to those architects if they asked you those questions? Your skin gets thicker and you can sleep better at night. Right? Like There are early projects that I, I would lose sleep over, right? And you, you fret. And then you think about the, you know, it's like 10 years in the same problem show up and you, you're like, well, well, we'll solve that in the next hour sort of thing. Right. So, so new is scary, but it doesn't need to be bad. Um, and I think one of the big things, like I just mentioned is, uh, looking outside of the industry, right? Like looking more broadly about the type of practice you want to create um, you might be inspiration way outside of architecture, right? I think that there's so many different opportunities now between the internet, between how funding for companies is structured, right? Like business loans seems like the most archaic form uh, of funding at this point versus like VC and bootstrapping and things. So like really thinking broadly about how you want to integrate the different elements from the the most inspirational kind of work, I think is, is the best first start. And then, yeah, say yes. And it's scary, but it really won't hurt you. Yeah. It's your insurance. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Have insurance. It'll, yep. it'll give you. It'll give you courage. Yep. Um, purpose is something that clearly is driving you. Um, is that purpose obviously to give back to the, com the community? Um, was that conscious from the beginning? Was did you recognize that purpose early on and say, okay? And I asked you a similar question earlier, but how much does that purpose drive you today, and where is it going to take you in the future? I think we've realized that while leaning into it, it's only made us better, the projects better, you know, and our community better. So there's no reason not to be purpose driven. Um, in the end, you know, we've really recognized that people in the community are watching us. We are kind of setting precedent, right? We did the first all inclusive bathrooms. We had to petition to the building uh, board of appeals uh, we utilized that research and shared it with architects nationally to say, this is how we defended the IBC about <laughs> their sloppy definition of toilet room, bathroom, et cetera, uh, to make our own interpretation that got approved. So like there's, there's purpose, you know, that can hit in a small way. And then there's purpose that creates influence that can hit in a big way. Um, going back to like those bathrooms, one of um, our team members who went to a bigger office, took that knowledge and applied it um, to the LinkedIn corporate offices that they were designing. LinkedIn loved it so much, they're integrating it to all of their future offices to do all-inclusive bathrooms um, instead of the binary structure. So no stalls, right? All single use. And that's something that we had influence over. And so recognizing that like small kind of purpose-driven, you know, projects could influence in in a multitude of ways that's harder to track right so the metrics of that like from our end it's like i don't have a spreadsheet that i can show like performance <laughs> metrics but it can do something good and so yeah i think there's different a lot of different ways that 
um, performance is good for business too. Is there a connection between purpose and saying yes? Sure. <laughs> um, I, maybe, maybe it's like, it's giving everything a chance, right? And maybe, maybe that's the best way to define it. Um, having others recognize and give me a chance, give Synecdoche a chance and everybody on our team. I feel like when I'm given an opportunity, it's a way to give myself in the, in the studio a chance, but also sometimes it's like projects that are really small or like a weird ask. And it's like, if I don't say yes, will someone else, right? Like, could this thing happen without me or not, you know, or without us. And I think that's where recognizing how to give a hand forward and give others a chance is maybe where the yes comes from. Yeah. You're very inspiring for sure. You're doing a lot of good out there and, and you're a role model to many other firms that, that want to do the things that you're doing uh, and might just be afraid to try. And so I appreciate you for doing it, uh, but also for coming on the show here and, and sharing it so others can be inspired by it. Thank uh, you. Before we wrap things up, I wanted to ask you the one question I ask everybody. Um, you're talking to thousands of small firm architects, lots of sole practitioners, uh, lots of people who have recently started their firms. What's one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? Find some other industry to talk to and integrate yourself into. Right. I think, um, that I think has been the biggest thing, you know, learning SOPs from restaurant world, um, learning BC and seed funding, you know, rounds from the tech world. Like these are all very practical applications in other industries that are just now showing up into our format. So find another industry and figure out how to translate and apply that because like translation as a design process is going to get you further in both your business and your projects. Lisa Sove is her name. You can learn more about the firm and all the projects that they're doing at synecdotedesign.com. You don't have to worry about how to spell it. It's going to be on the show notes. Just go to the show notes and click the link and go check it out. Doing so many interesting things. Definitely go check them out. Lisa, thank you for being so inspiring and doing the work that you're doing, uh, being a role model for other architects. Um, And thank you for stopping by here and sharing your story with me. I appreciate you and I appreciate all you're doing. Thanks so much, Mark. I really appreciate it. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, go write a review. I would love to know what you think of this podcast and it helps other architects find us. So go do five-star rating if you like it, share, write a review, I'd love it, and share a link to this episode with a friend because that's how we've grown. That's how Entree Architect has grown to serve thousands of architects throughout the world just like you. Thank you to our sponsors, RCAT, FreshBooks and BQE for their support of this episode. I ask you to support them because they support us. And if they're supporting us, they're supporting you. So go support them. Got it? Go support our sponsors. Links to our sponsors. So you can click on those links and go right to them. Links to our sponsors and all the resources we shared today are available at the show notes for this episode at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. All the shows are there. entrearchitect.com slash podcast. 
Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. Gable Media is curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows. I think there are 11 of them there now. Go there, gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And I hope you're going to join us in Austin, November 1st through November 3rd, 2022. Those are the dates for the Entree Architect Community Annual Meeting, our first ever live and in-person conference for you, the small firm architect community. Visit entrearchitect.com slash annual meeting right now to learn more. That's entrearchitect.com slash annual meeting, and I will see you in Austin in November. Don't miss this. This is going to be great. entrearchitect.com slash annual meeting. It's a conference for you, small firm architects. Thank you for listening today to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast. Love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us. Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. 
there is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.